0: new breed it is it is good to be back with you this morning hopefully you have your your bibles open to daniel chapter 2 and we're going to we're going to talk about this idea that there is no god like our god i'm i'm thankful for the opportunity to continue on in our series through the book of Daniel entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship. And and I have to tell you and be honest with you that, that I didn't land in Daniel 2. I know it's what we had next. I didn't land here without quite a good bit of turmoil and questioning and and wrestling through what, what to say this morning and the reason that it was such a struggle. And I, I know that you are you are aware of this is just what's going on in our country right now what's going on in our own city right now and the pain and the hurt and and the struggle and we we can't act like it's not real we can't act like it's not happening we can't act like this isn't the country in which we live and and i was i was wrestling with what, what to do this morning because I know that we're going to be gathering together tonight at 6 30 and if you didn't know we encourage you to, to tune back in for that for a time of reflection and lament and that we are going to specifically dive into some things um, related to what is going on uh, and I encourage you to be there and I, I, I still was wrestling with, with what to do this morning and as I went back to, to Daniel 2 I was I was comforted by the truth that there is no God like our God. I was encouraged by the lessons that we learn in this chapter of Scripture. And so maybe maybe it's somewhat selfish of me. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I, I just couldn't pull away because I think even in the midst of this, it is good for us to be reminded that there is no God like our God, but to see specifically what that means and even by the grace of God to apply that to our current situation that we are in. And so we're going to look at Daniel 2 thinking about this idea that there is... No God like our God. And we're going we're gonna to come at this text. We're going to, again, look at the full chapter, but we're going to come at it a little bit differently this morning. Rather than just kind of reading it all up front, what I want to do is I want to I take some time to read it. Uh, uh, and as we do, I'm going to kind of stop periodically to just make sure we actually understand what's going on in the text. So almost almost like a running commentary of sorts at, at the front end, just to make sure we understand as best we can uh, in this limited time what's actually transpiring. And so that'll be kind of the first part of the sermon. It won't be a, you know, a 50-50 split. It'll be a little shorter than the, the latter part. But then after we walk through this text and just kind of try to understand it in its context and what the Bible is actually saying, I, I want to then pull from this four lessons for us that, that remind us of the fact that there is no God like our God, So let's, let's dive into this text and start, and start reading it, and it says in, in Daniel chapter 2, beginning there in verse 1, that in the second year, and, and, and I'm actually going to be reading from the ESV this morning, and it says in the, the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, now I want to pause there just to address the timing of this because some people read this and think that chapter 2 is actually somewhat out of order because if, if you remember at the end of chapter 1, we saw that, that Daniel and his friends had been tested for, for three years, right? You remember what's been going on. So so God has allowed Judah to be conquered by by. Babylon, and this is judgment of their sin, and so what King Nebuchadnezzar did was he took he took children from the royal and the noble families, those that were were good looking and who could be taught and who were impressionable, or who he deemed to be impressionable, to bring them into the palace to train them and test them for three years, and then use them in service uh, to himself, the king and his his aim there was basically an indoctrination of the people that he was conquering because again we mentioned that if he could get the nobles and the royals on board then the rest of the nation would follow. But here at the beginning it says that that this is taking place in the second year of his reign. Now it's actually likely not the case that this is taking place out of order. Because in Babylonian tradition, there was a year of accession for the king. And so this was a year where the king would take the throne, where he would assume responsibilities. And typically, that year wasn't actually counted in his reign. So, in all likelihood, this chapter takes place very soon after chapter one. So, it's actually, if we count his year of accession, it would be in his third year. So, post the time of testing for Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So let's, let's keep reading there, beginning in verse 2. It says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream." Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation... You shall receive from me gifts and rewards and and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. And then verse 9, If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So, so basically what you, you have here, what, you, what you've probably picked up on, is that the king has had dreams, and these, these aren't normal dreams. These are, these are dreams that have troubled him. These are, these are dreams that most likely he believes have, have come from his gods attempting to communicate something to him, but he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what the gods that he believes in are trying to tell him. And so what he does is he calls in all the magicians, all the enchanters, and the sorcerers. Together he calls in these wise men, what he considers wise men. And I want you to note that they were all Chaldeans. Because notice who was not there. Daniel was not there. Because even though Daniel was perceived as the king to be a person who had understanding of dreams and visions, we saw that at the end of chapter 1, Daniel remained faithful to God. And he was not considered an enchanter, a magician, or a sorcerer, a sorcerer because he refused to defile himself. Do you remember that? And so the king wants these people that he has called together to tell him the meaning of the dream. But as we've already seen seen with Nebuchadnezzar, even in his strategy for training up the children of the people that he has conquered, Nebuchadnezzar is not a fool by earthly standards. And, And he knows that if he tells these wise men the dream, that they could make anything up and he would have no way of knowing if it was true or not. And it actually seems there in verse 9 that he's expecting them to lie to him because he says, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. And so he tells them, if you can't do this, if you can't tell me the dream first that I had and then the interpretation, he says, I will kill you. And what we have to understand about Nebuchadnezzar is that this was not an idle threat. Nebuchadnezzar has not been known to make idle threats. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar in other parts of Scripture has been shown to be quite brutal. We get an example of this brutality in 2 Kings 25 verses 6 through 7 where it says, Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah." And so the king of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar in this context. <clears throat> And it says, and and they passed sentence on him, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And it says, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So these individuals, these wise men, these Chaldeans know that Nebuchadnezzar is not someone to be trifled with. And, And just to put it plainly, these individuals, they don't want that smoke. They don't want that. They don't want to irritate Nebuchadnezzar. They don't want to make him mad because they know that if he says he will kill them, he will surely do it. So let's continue reading verses 10 and 11. It says, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing from any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And, And in this statement, the Chaldeans make two very significant theological observations. First... They observe and say that no man can do what the king asks. No man can do this. And what that means is that the the Chaldeans, these wise men, they're already priming Nebuchadnezzar's mind for the reality that the only way he can get what he wants is if God, or in their cases, as they believe, God's intervene. They, they are trying to communicate and painting this theological reality that what he asks is impossible. It would require the supernatural so only God or a God could do this. But there's a problem the, he, and, and they note this in what they say. This is, this is the second theological observation that they make. Look at verse 11, specifically the very end. It says, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods. And and listen to this. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. You see what the Chaldeans perhaps unintentionally are saying there. Is that their gods are insufficient to deal with humanity on a personal level. The Chaldean gods do not dwell with flesh. And church, if that does not scream to us, that there is no God like our God, because that reality for their gods stands in stark contrast to our God, and it reminds us just how amazing He is, because it can never be said of our God that His dwelling is not with flesh, because God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. God spoke to faithful men like Noah and Abraham. Our God communicated to Moses and allowed and allowed His presence to dwell on Mount Sinai. Our God traveled with his people in the tabernacle. Our God allowed his presence to pass by Elijah. Our God dwelt among Israel in the temple. And our God took on flesh and walked this ground in order to redeem a people to himself. And even more, the very spirit. Spirit of our God literally dwells in flesh. He dwells in his people who are redeemed. It can never be said that our God is not among us. There is no God like our God but for the Chaldeans and their fake gods. They were distant and they could not intervene. And so the story continues here in verse 12. It says, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Notice the God they sought wisdom from. To seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. It says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, Magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any or more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. And so Daniel here is verse 31 is going to start telling him the dream. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors." And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O King, the King of Kings, to whom the God of Heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands He has given where, given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts. Of the field the birds of the heavens making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. And another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. Or breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. But in the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another left to another people it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation is Sure. Stick with me. The last few verses says the king, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And he commanded that an offering, and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly God is God of gods. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal the mystery." Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. I know that was a lot but it is God's word and it is good. And so let me kind of break down very quickly what, what transpired there in, in that dream. So, so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and, and in this dream he sees a figure and it's made of different things. It has, it has gold, it has silver, it has bronze, it has iron and clay and different parts of the body are made up of different material. And as Daniel interprets the dream, he tells us that each part of this figure make up a kingdom, Now, there's some speculation as to what these kingdoms were, but the early church fathers and many throughout history have held, and history attests to this, that the head of gold was Babylon, ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar, that the chest and the arms made of silver, they were weaker than the gold. It was the Medo-Persia Empire that was to come following the fall of Babylon. And the middle and the thighs of this statue was made of bronze, and that's to to represent Greece and Alexander the Great who would conquer the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the legs and feet, the one that was strong, that could break the other pieces, that was made of iron, but yet it had weaker aspects of it, and that was clay. That would be the Roman Empire, and it was from that empire. And during that time, the last kingdom, when God would establish a kingdom on this earth that would last for eternity. And it was in the midst of the Roman Empire that a man named Jesus walked on this earth. And so in this, this vision that God had given Nebuchadnezzar, he is telling him a prophetic word about what is to come. Now there is much that we could say even in that prophecy and the fulfillment of it that attests to the fact that there is no God like our God because we have seen it in history come true. But I'm going to hold off on diving deep into that because these kingdoms will come up again later in Daniel and we will focus a little bit more intently on them. But chapter two in its entirety is an incredible story of God showing up. It is, it is a story of God preserving Daniel. And what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to share with you a few lessons that we should take away from this chapter as we think through all that we just read. And I know it was a lot. That's why I've encouraged you to study this on your own before we gather. But I have a few lessons that I think are timely and significant, even in the current season that we are in. Here's the first lesson that I want you to take away from Daniel chapter 2 as we think through the truth that there is no God like our God. God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see. God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see. If you remember back to last week, while Daniel was still in this time of testing, it said in chapter 1, verse 17, that as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, we don't know exactly when in that process of testing that God did that. It could have been immediately after those initial 10 days of testing. So there were still basically basically two years, almost three years left in this time of testing. We don't know if it was immediately after those 10 days that God, because of their faithfulness, gave them these gifts. We don't know We don't know if it was at the very end of this time of testing that God gave them these gifts. So it could have been years before this encounter in Daniel 2. It could have been months before this encounter in Daniel 2. We're not sure. But what the point is, is this. It's that on a personal level, we see with Daniel that God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see. Because in the midst of exile, in the midst of service to a foreign king, in the midst of this time Time of trial and testing God was going to use Daniel to testify about the majesty and beauty beauty and validity of Yahweh and Daniel did not know this at the time that God gave him those gifts Daniel likely did not know That there would come a time where the king would threaten to kill him and many others if someone could not tell him the dream that he had and the interpretation. I doubt that Daniel knew that when God granted him these gifts. But notice that it was a result of Daniel's faithfulness in the midst of the trial that God showed Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel and his friends exceeded any Chaldean in knowledge and understanding. It was a result of Daniel's faithfulness that God blessed Daniel with these gifts that God would use years later to shape a nation. As a result of Daniel's faithfulness, he was able to witness to the truth that God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see. And beloved, the same is true of us. In the midst of trials, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of oppressive regimes and injustice, in the midst of our greatest joys and our deepest sorrows, God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see in our lives. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reminds us that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul in that that passage in 2 Corinthians is declaring to us is that we cannot base the hope of our lives on the affliction in this this age, because it won't last forever. Instead, we are invited to place our hope on the eternal weight of glory, which though at this time is unseen, it is eternal. And in that glory, the saying will come true that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And oh, how we long for that. How I want that right now. But while we wait, we have to wait believing that even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our pain, that God is doing exceedingly more than we can see. But here's something that's equally amazing. Not only is God doing exceedingly more in the life of Daniel, more than he can see in his own life, But God is also doing exceedingly more through Daniel than he can see. You know, we we cannot miss this. And oh church, if this is not something that we need right now. Judah, and Daniel included in that, was conquered by a pagan nation. He was taken from his home and made a slave in the house of a pagan king. And yet, Daniel remained faithful to God. He refused to compromise. He refused to defile himself. And what Daniel did not know was that through his faithfulness and trust in a good God, that God was going to use Daniel to speak the truth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to a pagan ruler and through that pagan ruler to reach the nation. In the midst of national disgrace and tyranny and oppression, God was using his servant to proclaim truth to a nation that did not believe. And brothers and sisters, listen to me. We are living as exiles in a foreign land. And this is a pagan land. This is a land that is built on oppression and injustice and sin. And yet we cannot, we cannot lose heart because we believe that God works through His faithful servants in ways exceedingly beyond what we can see and even what we can understand. And I know, church, I know that it is hard, but we have hope. Earlier in Second Corinthians chapter 4, Before Paul reminds us of this light momentary affliction, he says this beginning in verse 8, that we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Church, God is doing exceedingly more than we can see. There is no God like our God. But here's the second lesson, and I think that this is is one of the harder lessons, yet it's so important. Not only is God doing exceedingly more than we can see, God does not have to do what we want. God does not have to do what we want. You know, I don't know if you noticed the progression of this or not, and I intentionally didn't mention it because I knew I would come back to it, but it's very interesting to know. Because in Daniel 2, there there in verse 13, the decree goes out to kill all the wise men in Babylon, and this included Daniel. And Daniel doesn't find this out until verse 15. That's when he's told that the king has made this decree. And then in verse 16, Daniel requests to see the king in order to tell him the dream and its meaning. But here's where it gets interesting. Daniel didn't know it yet. Daniel made the request to see the king and tell him the dream and the interpretation, but he didn't know it yet. Because then, beginning in verse 17, we read this. Then Daniel went to the house and made the matter matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. It was a mystery. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then... After he had already requested to see the king, already made an appointment to tell him the dream and the interpretation, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel made that request to see the king without knowing if God would reveal the dream to him. And so what we see here, and it's the first glimpse of it, and we will see it repeated over and over throughout the book, but we see with Daniel and his friends this belief that God can do anything that he wants, but he does not have to do what they want right? And this belief, it's not isolated. Again, we'll see it again. We'll talk more about it even next week as Daniel's friends declare this truth verbally before they're thrown into the fire. You might know this story, the story of Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar builds this giant idol to himself, right? And he tells everyone to worship the idol. And and then, and if you don't worship the idol, then you'll be killed. And, And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to compromise. They refuse to be unfaithful to God. They refuse to bow to a false god. And they are are taken before Nebuchadnezzar and about to be thrown into the fire. And listen to what they declare in Daniel 3 verses 17 and 18. Right after the king has said that you will be thrown into the fire, they say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able, he is able, he is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery fire, furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But listen to this. But they say, but if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And the only way that these men could make that declaration is with a deep-seated belief that God can do anything he wants, but he does not have to do what they want, but they trust that whatever God allows is best. You know, you go back to Daniel and for all Daniel knew, this moment right here in verse 16 when he says, take me before the king and I will show him the interpretation of the dream. When he didn't have the interpretation, he didn't know the dream. For all Daniel knew, this could have been the end of his story. For all he knew, God was going to use Daniel to show the king in Babylon that God's provision was 10 times better than anything else like he had seen. And perhaps that was all that God was going to use Daniel for. And Daniel's story ends in chapter 1. That could have been all that God used Daniel for. Or God could continue to use Daniel. And Daniel did not know. He had no knowledge of what God was going to do with him and through him in the future. But Daniel was trusting that God could do anything. But he understood that God did not have to do what Daniel wanted. But Daniel and his friends believed that whatever God does is always right and good and it is best. And church, we have to have that same mentality. That whatever God does and whatever God allows, whatever prayers God does not answer, whatever deliverance he does not give, whatever persecution and hardship he does not remove, that God is doing what is right and what is good and what is best. And I know, church, I know there are times where we cannot fathom how God will use things for our good. I'm going to be real transparent for you. I don't always know how to reckon on an intellectual level how God not ending so many of your individual experiences of racism and injustice in this country were will be, how it will be worked for good and how it is best. I can't always rationalize that. I don't always know how to reckon on an intellectual level how God allowing pain and suffering and oppression and injustice and sickness and loss, how God allowing a pandemic is what is best and what is right. But God always does what is best and what is right. But I am comforted that I am not alone in my inability to reckon that. I'm reminded of even what we just looked at in the book of Habakkuk where God tells Habakkuk what he's gonna do. And Habakkuk still can't understand it because it's too far above him. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. We live in this time-space continuum and God does not. He sees the beginning and the end at the same time. And even that's a mystery to us. But God is always doing what is best and what is right. And I can take comfort in the fact that I am not alone and that there have been men who have struggled and women who have struggled with that same thing and yet they have shown us pictures of faith. And church, that is, that's where the rubber meets the road for our faith. We trust in faith and what we trust is the unwavering truth that is declared to us in Romans eight twenty eight. that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But note, and please hear me, what that verse does not say is that it will be good in this life. It never says that. This book, that statement does not promise that at the end of our life, we will be able to look back and understand all the good that God is working in That moment of our death. It doesn't say that it will ever be good in this life, but it does say that God will work all things together for good. And this is where we see the beautiful tapestry of the scripture woven together because we look at Romans 8 and that promise that God will work all things to good for those who love him and and are called according to his purpose. And we set that alongside what we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Glory beyond all comparison, and we are reminded that perhaps the good that God is producing is in the life to come. Perhaps the suffering in the temporary is meant to drive us to long for eternity in a way that we never could without the suffering. And, and I don't know about you, and I know this is, is hard to live out at, at some times, but, but I will take eternal goodness over temporary, earthly, and fleeting goodness any day. And what that means is that if I have to suffer the affliction in this life to build up the eternal weight of glory, then so be it. Because I trust that God will work all things together for good. And it might not be good in this life, but I will take goodness for eternity over temporary goodness any day. And like Daniel and his friends, we have to trust That God can do anything, but he doesn't have to do what we want. And like Daniel and his friends, we have to believe that whatever God does, whatever God allows, is right and good and is best. And this will require faith, not rationality. I'm not saying everything is irrational. I'm not saying all of faith is irrational. But there are aspects of our faith that we cannot comprehend, and that is okay. But when we believe this, when we believe that God can do whatever he wants, but he doesn't have to do what I want, but whatever he does is always right and good, when we believe this, it will drive us to worship God for who he is and not only for what he does. This leads to the third lesson, and I'm going to try to pick up the pace. I didn't know exactly how the timing would work, and we're starting to, to come towards the end, but third lesson that I, that I want you to see from this text is that God deserves worship because of who he is and not only for what he does. Now, and I want to be careful. I am not saying that you don't worship God for what he does, but God deserves to be worshiped for who he is, not only for what he does. Because as we just established, there will be times that God will do things other than what you want. And in those moments, he is still worthy of worship. And one thing that is interesting to note in chapter two is the different responses to God. One from Daniel and his friends and the other from King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the chapter. And look at verse 19 again, beginning in verse 19. It says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel answered and said, now listen to what Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might he changes times and seasons he removes kings and sets up kings he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding he reveals deep and hidden things he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him to you o god of my fathers i give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made and have now made known to me what we asked of you for You have made known to us the king's matter. And I want you to notice some key things there in verse 20. He praises the name of God, the one who possesses all things, including wisdom and might. In verse 21, he is the sovereign God who controls his creation and who is worthy of Worship in verse 22, he is the wise God who knows all things and is worthy of worship. And then finally, in verse 23, he praises God for what he has done for Daniel specifically in giving wisdom and might. So Daniel worships primarily the bulk of his worship. The crux of his worship is worshiping God for who he is. Yes, he worships God for what he has done, but it comes on the heels of and pales in comparison to his praise for God just being God. Now compare that with Nebuchadnezzar's response to this dream and to God showing him through Daniel the dream and the interpretation. Look at the end of the chapter, beginning there in verse 46. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, notice this, and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So yes, there's no denying it. Nebuchadnezzar pays weak lip service to God, but ultimately he's not praising God. He's praising Daniel. He's praising the one who did the thing that he wanted because what mattered most to King Nebuchadnezzar was what was done, not the God who did it. You, you even see that exemplified in his response when he says that Daniel has been, been able to reveal the mystery. And what we see here is the difference between real worship and fake worship. And real worship always begins with an understanding of who God is. And yes, we look at what he has done because we understand him better in what he does. But we praise God, not first and foremost for what he does for us. We praise God first and foremost and ultimately for who he is. And here's the amazing thing, that when we do this, we will have a worship that can stand and remain in the midst of any circumstances. We will have a worship that is not dependent on what is going on around us. We will have worship that endures when the world crumbles around us. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, even in the midst of that, we will worship when we worship God for who he is and not only for what he does. And that means that when the world hates, when the world oppresses, when the world marginalizes, when the world hurts, we will praise him still. Because our God is faithful and he never changes. And church, it is dangerous To have a worship that is solely built on God doing what you want. Because as we mentioned, there will be times when he will not. But he is still good. He is still worthy. And if God is only good when you are good, then God will rarely be good. Because scripture tells us we live in a world filled with toils and snares. In this world, you will have trouble. But we take heart in the God who has overcome this world. Now again, this does not mean that we don't praise God for good gifts. We do because he gives good gifts and he is kind. And at times he will answer yes to what we ask him. And because that's part of who he is. But this leads to the final lesson as we consider the fact that there is no God like our God. The final lesson that I want you to see this morning is that God is the giver of every good gift. God is the giver of every good gift. We see this reality in two places. We see it as mentioned In the praise that Daniel offers up, specifically verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel understands that what he has and what he knows is a gift from God. And you see that change how he acts because at no point, at no point do you see Daniel boast about how great he is. He has not figured out the mystery. He, he has not remained faithful in his own strength. He is not in the position to sway kings and rulers because of his great personality. Daniel understands that anything good he can claim is because of God. Therefore, his boast is not in himself. His boast is in his great God. But you also see this truth again in the interpretation of the vision because after the prophecy of nations rising and falling we read this in verse 44 and it says and in those or in the days of those kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. And what Daniel is speaking of the vision, what Daniel is longing for, what he is proclaiming to King Nebuchadnezzar, what he and all of the faithful children of God were looking forward to was when God would give his greatest gift. When God would send Jesus. When God would send this Messiah, this one who would come and redeem, because Judah in this moment feels the pain of their sin. They know that their sin separates them from God, just like our sin separates us from God. And there's nothing we can do to remedy that on our own. But God God sought to establish his kingdom by sending his son who lived the perfect life. He he failed in no area of the law. He kept all of the mosaic requirements. He did not deserve death and punishment, and yet he willingly died on a cross to save us. And he raised from the dead three days later. And we are invited into his family through faith and repentance. But there was something else that was happening in the death and resurrection. You see, back in Genesis 3, there was a promise made that though Satan would bruise his heel, that Jesus would crush his head. And through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus dealt the death blow to Satan and established his kingdom here on earth. And in Christ, God is establishing a kingdom, a kingdom that will not fall, a kingdom that the kingdom of this world cannot overcome. It is a kingdom of peace where there is no hatred, no injustice, no oppression, there is no pain, there is no sorrow. And while that kingdom has been established through Christ's death and resurrection, the culmination of that kingdom will come when Christ returns and therefore like Daniel we have reason to boast in our God even when everything else else seems to be going wrong we boast in a kingdom and a king that will not be shaken and like David in Psalm 34 we declare my soul makes its boast in the Lord And as we fix our eyes on Him in the midst of real pain and confusion and anger in a world that is both literally and spiritually burning down around us, we can declare, even in the midst of that, that there is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. Our God is often doing exceedingly more than we can see exceedingly more than what we can see not only in our own lives but also in the world around us we believe that God does not have to do what we want at times he may at times he might answer with yes but but at other times he won't say no he'll say i have something better god deserves worship because of who he is not only what he does. And this is a worship that will last. And God is the giver of every good gift. And we see that most clearly in Jesus. And we see in Jesus the establishment of a kingdom that we fix our eyes on, that we long for, that we hope in. We fix our eyes on the eternal weight of glory, knowing and believing that everything we experience is in this life, will fail to overcome the joy that we have in life to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. God, I thank you for how timely it is. I thank you for how on point it is. God, I thank you. But as you communicated to us, you communicated to us with a deep knowledge of us so you know what we need to hear, you know what we need to believe, you know what is right and what is best and what is good. And Father, I pray that even in the most tumultuous of times that we would hold fast to you believing that through Christ we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.